Spy Cops Info Podcast. A series on the secret undercover political police who spied on over a thousand campaign groups since 1968. Episode 12, The Lambert Report. Okay, so welcome to the Spy Cops Info Podcast. I'm Tom Fowler and I'm joined with... Chris Bryan from the Undercover Research Group. And... Jessica from the Undercover Research Group. So today we're talking about the Lambert Report, which to give it its proper name is the discussion paper on SDS targeting strategy and deployment in relation to the Animal Liberation Front. That's a very misleading title. It is a bit, yeah. It's absolutely nothing to do with that. But it is authored (laughs) by Bob Lambert. Yes. Which uh, is the reason why we call it the Lambert Report. So it's an interesting document. Uh, it's one of those ones which was released by the Inquiry not that long ago. But um, it appears that if anybody who's read the undercover book by Rob Evans and Paul Lewis, it is mentioned in there. I thought it's, it's a 60-page report. We have read all of it. It's a report about Mike Chitty or Mike Blake. Yeah. yeah, mostly about him. Uh, or Mike Blake, as he was known when he was in the animal rights movement in the early 80s. 84 to 87. Uh, he was involved in, uh, was, South, was it South London? Animal movement. Yeah. SLAM. Good Slam. acronym. Great acronym. Like, more good acronyms, please. You know, I was a member of CAN, Cardiff Anarchist Network. Great acronym. More of those. BRAG. BRAG is a good one. Uh, Battersea um, Redevelopment Action Group. One of those animal rights groups that weren't particularly militant, um, involved in a lot of, you know, fairly standard sort of campaigning. Certainly not the Animal Liberation Front. For people who've been following the inquiry and maybe the podcast, so this paper was published in 1994. But the reason why we were we are talking about it now is because it was actually published right at the end of the uh, the last hearings, at, at the end of in May. And the reason for that, because it mentions another guy, um, who was deployed um, within that time frame? Phil Cooper, HM155, who we've talked about in passing at least before. Um, but also, we've got some, obviously, Lambert's the the author of the report. We've got Mike Chitty, as you mentioned. We've also got um, some other brass, DC, mm. DCS. I think it's Tony Waite, I'm not quite sure on that. And DCI Edmondson, I don't know about much about those two. There's, and there's also another undercover. Stefan Scutt, whose cover name was uh, Wazilowski, HN95. Um, but, you know, if you, if, if you, but also John Dines is in there as well. Yeah. So it's kind of like um, like an Olympics of shitheads, the report. Yeah, Olympics of, you know, of some really awful men. Basically, uh, it, I mean, it really is. I mean, it, it, it somewhat like the tradecraft manual that three of us discussed in episode two. They, like the, the language used there is like uh, the, the, it's that internal language that they're their own sort of like in jokey kind of way of talking. Yeah, and sorry, I've also missed that one who shouldn't be forgotten. We don't know his real name, we only know him by cipher his HN number, HN86, and he was the one. At least according to whistleblower Peter Francis, who who deployed him against uh, Stephen Lawrence's family and the family campaign. So really, you know, quite a lovely collection of people here. It's interesting, like kind of John Dines, for example, is talked about in the report with like quite, quite glowingly. Like there's there's some real sort of oh yeah, it's almost. I mean, it's almost homoerotic the way he goes on <laughs> Lambert that goes on about him. To be honest, it's it, quite just. Which is I'm 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 absolutely fine with homoeroticism, but but. Between those two, is pretty revolting. Lambert said Dines emerged from four years' deployment in the ALF, bruised, battered and outstandingly successful. He endured the most arduous working conditions in the history of the SDS. Yeah, he, he, I mean, <gasps> he could have, almost could have added, but his hair still looked good at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, not a favourite at all there of, um, of Lambert's. Yeah, I mean, it is dripping, like, like so many of their internal documents, it is dripping with their own opinions. Um, yeah, very similar to the the undercover, the, the, the manual, the tradecraft manual. It's, it's kind of like it's supposed to be this official document, yet yeah, it's like a mixture of personal bias, anecdote, and then in this case, it's probably more so than the tradecraft manual. You get much more of the personality of the author coming over, which is like this very arrogant, self-regarding man, um, Bob Lambert. 
he, hide, he doesn't really hide his um, his feelings towards Chitty either. It's um, he's got some some real like choice things he says about him there that he's sort of dis almost dishonest where he's saying that he's he's managed to convince the um the psychiatrist the police psychiatrist that um he's suffering from stockholm syndrome instead of um actually just being sort of uh like well basically lying lying about his uh his condition yeah he, he calls it vanity and uh and ego i think instead of stockholm syndrome doesn't he which is ironic because basically lambert's second guessing a, a qualified psychiatrist at this point but then he is an expert on vanity and ego. Despite his title, the part that's been published, and I suspect actually the second part, which actually was supposed to be about the animal liberation movement, never ever got written. But this report, this part of the report is about three officers who went... Playing the SDS card, wasn't it? Was how they described it. Yeah, so using their deployment to cover up their misdeeds as a police officer. Yeah, and, and it seems they had plenty of them. I mean, like, they paint a picture of these characters like outside of their, like, field work. It's just really dysfunctional, like, particularly Chitty. Like, I mean, partially, I mean, obviously that's because Bob Lambert is, like, not a fan of him. But, like, he just, like, just sounds like a complete mess of a man, like. Yeah, well, he was. I mean, they, he points out in this um, sort of. I mean, basically, the the most part of this um, this document is sort of is criticizing Chitty for going going back to the group to slam um, that he that he left, and he said he was doing that for two years, unbeknownst to his employers and also his wife. So when he was out of the SDS and he was. Um, he went to, I think he was working, working for SO11, the security... Um, the criminal intelligence branch. That's right. And for, like, when he was supposed to be at the at the house he was staying in or something, he used to go back and change his clothes and go back to meet up with all the people from SLAM. And, uh, yeah, he carried this on for about two years. And the uh, neither his employers... Um, <laughs> just as, yeah, well, how good were they at Intel? But they had no idea, and uh, and neither did his wife. And so basically, that was where um, his the disciplinary sort of came from. Is what he was doing sort of all this time. The fact that he did this while he was still a special branch officer for two years and nobody noticed doesn't speak too well of them as detectives, does it? Yeah, it, it goes <laughs> so, to. I mean, the report goes to a whole sort of like wrangling by by Lambert about how like. Ah oh, well, if he'd have got, if he'd have been doing his job properly and had been infiltrating like the ALF like he was meant to, then... like, like I did, because I'm great, like I, you know, basically is what he's saying. <laughs> then it would have, we would have found him out immediately. Um, I mean, it's quite, it's quite, I think it's quite an illustrative section actually, because he goes on about like kind of, oh well, the people who were infiltrating like the RCP, if they went back, they'd have to go and do this and that, but. Because these animal rights people and similarly these anarchists were just like, you know, they're kind of quite nice people and stuff and they would just like be friendly with you. So so it was really easy to do with them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. He just he described them as like well-meaning, idealistic campaigners. Typically, they'd be peace loving, compassionate people. Those bastards that need infiltrating. Definitely. There's quite uh, there's quite a lot of really annoying stuff, which is on the um Lambert says about about this it's very much on, on a similar level to what Graham Coates sort of like his delusion that he was actually an anarchist when he was a, a police officer that there's some there was some kind of that uh, SDS officers had some kind of affinity with the people they were in, mm. infiltrating if they infiltrated animal rights or anarchist groups and it's like piss off you're nothing like us nothing to do with us you know you've got no affinity with us whatsoever mm. it's just you know yeah. Then he then at one point he does say that um, where Chitty tries to um, to convince like the um, I think it's the police psychiatrist that his you know he has this this affinity with them and you know he holds all the animal rights views and and all that sort of stuff and then um, Lambert says you know but basically that's you know that's that's not the case you know he's more um, he's more interested in sort of the the social life and the and the drugs. So yeah, he sort of it's. You know, he, he can't really have it, well, he tries to have it both ways, but uh, 
said that no, he didn't have any no sort of affinity for the for the cause. Um, it was just sort of the 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 drugs and the the lifestyle of having no responsibilities that um, obviously we all had at the same time. We all had um, in these groups that that he was spying on. And one of the other things that Lambert that's in this report is there's some kind of line drawing. So prior to Lambert and his seems to be a, a, a HN86 joining the SDS, everything was a bit topsy turvy, and there was all these officers who weren't really pulling their weight. And and HN86 introduced the, these these psychiatric testing, which sorted out all the problems, which obviously we now know is. Um, was not true <laughs> and least of all in respect of Lambert himself because this is the thing about reading this report it's basically Lambert criticizing this officer and you think oh, hang on a second yeah this is the guy who not only had a relationship with father the child and this is like you know when he's writing this obviously this has already happened so it's just like I mean hypocrisy doesn't really cover it does it I mean it's just <laughs> it's another level isn't it really yeah <laughs> Um, he he describes this um, this episode with uh, with Chitty as like the lowest the low point in the twenty five years of the existence of the SDS. Well, that was only because they hadn't found out what you'd done, you know, Lambert. That's that's all. You know, I think you took over sort of quite convincingly after that. We've had slight problems before with like kind of the, the talk of the you know the officer giving um, his details when he got he got stopped for drink driving and, and other bits and pieces, but. It's like this idea that this is that the Senate's totally changed, and and like the wife thing, like this, Chitty didn't have like didn't have his wife didn't get interviewed, and that was clearly part of the problem. They didn't vet the wife properly, um, and these other sort of bits and pieces that you just think like, fucking hell, Bob, <laughs> you knob, like look what you fucking got up to, you tit. <laughs> and the other thing that Lambert is attempting, he's betraying, he's, he paints himself as this amazing undercover officer, but he also Politically, he kind of paints himself as this like progressive liberal person. Uh, you know, he's you know quite touchy feely. Oh. Uh, you know, he, he says, in fact, we need to encourage a healthy environment in which field officers feel safe to talk about the inevitable emotion ties to their target groups. Which you know, what we know obviously about Lambert, that's kind of yeah. Anyway, anyway. I mean, it, it is. I, mean, I think it's really interesting because it shows. When we look at him, once he be you know came out as an as an academic, when he, when he left the police, he was an academic. And you look at the way that he talked about a lot of things there, particularly around like um, outreach to the Muslim community in order to stop radicalization. He's using that same sort of language, and we hear that kind of language used quite a lot by like the corporate world as like kind of just a way to excuse their fucking shitty behaviour. I think like he was he really was a trailblazer, <laughs> Bob Lambert, for that kind of just. You're using fucking corporate bullshit speak to cover for fucking horrendous behaviour. To some extent, he just comes over that sort of really patronising liberal, but this time it's like a, an undercover police officer patronising liberal. We're not going to go into his career too much here, but we mentioned the fact that he had an, a relationship um, and fathered a child. The other thing is that he was also involved in, uh, to date, I think the most serious uh, miscarriage of justice, in that there was... Um, an animal rights um, incendiary device planted in Debenhams, and he was one of three people who planted the device, allegedly, I should probably say. Um, and But the other two people, genuine animal rights activists, actually sent, I think they were sentenced to three and four years, respectively. So that's still in process, that court case, in, in terms of the appeal. But I think we just, yeah, I just wanted to mention that in terms of the hit, you know, him, him being this the author of this report, which criticises other officers, literally, you know, he was like, you know, one of the worst ones. And I, in some ways, I, mean, I think when we first started discovering about undercover, the undercover policing thing, um, we really saw Lambert as like chief bastard. Uh, and we, we at first we thought he was the guy who pioneered the sort of um, sexual relationships as means of cover. I mean, since then, we've learned about Rick Gibson and all the stuff that happened in the 1970s. But... I mean, I think we will return to Bob Lambert again and again on this podcast. I'm sure there's a great deal to be said about him, and there's a, you know, it's great that he got up to. Uh, I mean, he is he's since. I mean, there is we'll, we'll we'll link to it in the in the show notes. But I mean, he's admitted that he was was it cruel, weak, and wrong. I think was the, the, the way he described himself. Yeah, I've got some other some other words to add to that. But um, I mean, it's also he. Um, 
what, what Lambert goes on to say is that um, Chitty was romantically attached to a number of women in this group. And he said that um, it was sort of within the SDS, it was a standing joke that the South London animal movement was more of a dating service than a viable campaigning group. So, again, to say that it was, uh, you know, that they didn't know about these relationships. I mean, bearing in mind... Um, Lambert wrote this the year after my relationship with um, with Andy Davy, who was sort of, who was another one deployed into the animal rights, uh, well, or supposedly to um, to spy on the Animal Liberation Front. So he would have been his manager at the time. You know, he obviously knew all about um, Chitty's relationships. He'd had his own, and uh, he was he was Andy's manager. So. You know, it's getting less and less believable when they say that, you know, the managers and that didn't know. It was clearly, you know, clearly accepted. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tongue firmly in cheek almost, isn't it? Of like kind of, oh, he had he had relations with more than one woman. Imagine that, Bob, eh? More than one, eh? Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, I think at least three, at least three isn't there with um, with Bob himself. But uh, yeah, one of the um, one of the other things that he mentions as well is about where Chitty um, went back to the um, the group that he'd been spying on, and um, he was he was actually seen by um, is it one of the other actual deployed undercover officers, and I think. It was it was Coles, I think, that saw him. That sorry, Davy Andy Davy stroke Coles, um, who actually saw him uh, in a restaurant. Um, I believe it's him. The only other person it would have been was Matt Rayner, but I think I seem to remember hearing possibly from um, from Chitty's the woman that he had a relationship with at the time. Um, she knew she was aware of Coles. Yeah, because it sounded like it was somebody inside the, rather than being a remote spying thing, wasn't it? So I think they was probably tailing Robin Lane, wasn't he? Yes, yeah, and that's that was, uh, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure that um, I know that Coles knew um, knew Robin Lane. So yeah, I would imagine it'd be him. But it's yeah, I mean, it's all one sort of very like incestuous kind of um, unit. I think they all seem to know each other and each other's wives, and you know, they all they all go to the Christmas or they used to go to the Christmas dance or whatever with their, you know, with their wives and partners. I mean, that must, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall for that. It'd be very awkward, wouldn't it? I don't think these people do awkward though, do they? They don't appear to. Like, they don't appear to, just the barefacedness of the whole bloody thing. When I've been reading through some of the reports that have come out, um, the, often the officer who are doing the surveilling of these particular meetings, they, they note down their own involvement in the meetings, you know, that the fact they're interfering, making decisions, making speeches to the meetings. Uh, and you would, you know, obviously they didn't think there was anything wrong with that, <laughs> that they were totally interfering with, you know, political, legitimate political activist groups. You know, so it's just very little self-awareness of anything they were doing was, was wrong at all. It's all just a big playground, right? I mean, even like, so, like, I mean, this is the thing with, with the, what makes this report so weird is that, like, Lambert is, like, kind of chastising somebody uh, whilst at the same time engaging in all the same things he's moaning about somebody having done. Uh, and it's just, and you get the impression, anybody, because it's an internal document, who is it, who's going to read it who doesn't know, like, what the real, like, culture within the unit is? I mean, is it, is it, it feels like something that was specifically written for, like, one or two people to read? Yeah, I think there's an awful lot of stuff in there that, you know, they don't, that they wouldn't have, like you say, with the, um, like, the Tradecraft manual, is it wasn't ever expected to be sort of, you know, seen by, by the public and, you know, by anyone sort of outside of their, of their group, because, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty awful, you know, the fact that they knew all about these, you know, these different things that, that were going on. And, uh, you know, I mean, also where, like, Chitty is is saying that he's, um, you know, he's got Stockholm Syndrome and he's trying to um, to get basically sort of on, like, the medical... Um, his medical pension sort of rather than getting dismissed so and you know I mean Lambert's basically sort of came in for that saying that you know he's just devious and um 
you know, and like just, I mean, he comes across with all this stuff where he says that, you know, some things that he says are, um, are quite quite right some of the things that um chitty has said and then other other things he says um, lambert says that he's qualified to correct so when he says that he was um he was threatened um, under threat of attack from hunt supporters and he points out that um that slam didn't actually attend any hunts and so he's saying that you know he's just he's making he's making more of it than than there actually was just basically so that he wouldn't be um held like up for disciplinary and basically sacked and i think like the in the end of the at the end of the report he uh, he says that it would actually be better you know for for the sds if he was sort of given you know virtually like given a, a medical payoff and then he would just go away and um and not sort of out the sds you know or play the sds card which um which he he had threatened to do yeah, one of the astonishing things about this is that we have three officers, Scott, Stefan Scott, um, Phil Cooper and, and Mike Chitty, and they basically they basically black, bright, um, blackmail the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police for the police pensions, and it works. <laughs> it's quite impressive, really. I, wonder, we've got, I mean, they've got to hand it to them for that, at least, you know. And, and you can see why they, they tried it on, because they knew that, as, as Lambert calls it in this report himself, that the golden rule is not to give the game away, to give away the SDS's operations. So given that sort of trumps everything else, then, you know... <laughs> You can you can use that against the, you know, and we know from a lot of the documents that the senior police in in the map were always very worried and paranoid about this all coming out and being a terrible PR disaster. So they had you know these officers, despite their various misdemeanors and more serious uh, things, uh, as well as you know fiddling expenses and um, drinking on duty and what what have you you know they were untouchable because of this this great secret they held yeah it's i mean that's actually how they sort of how they cottoned on to chitty's double life was because he was putting in um receipts like vastly vastly more expensive petrol receipts than um than he should have and it actually then it transpired he was in red hill buying his petrol when he should have been which is in surrey when he should have been in uh wiltshire it's a bit like getting Al Capone for his tax taxes, isn't it? It's obviously a bit of an exaggeration, but you know. But they, um, yeah, I mean, another one of um, one of Lambert's sort of uh, well, the people he seems to really detest is um, Phil Cooper, um, and who he describes as selfish, arrogant, disloyal both professionally and domestically, has no redeeming features in this officer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He, he he was he was the one according to Lambert's report that gave that gave um, Chitty advice on how to basically blackmail the Met. Yeah, so when Chitty sort of disappeared, I think after things weren't going his way, and he disappeared for a week and uh, not telling his wife, which called, causing her great distress. Which um, you know Lambert was really seemed very concerned about. You know, not obviously mentioning his own wife's distress, um, but he uh, yeah, and it was um, they discovered that he'd been. Um, He'd gone to see Phil Cooper and was getting some some advice. But, uh, yeah, he describes, I think it's actually HM155, he describes as the lowest point in the history of the SDS. That's right, yeah. Lambert also describes a visit that he and another officer made to um, Chitty in a pub. Obviously, everyone met in pubs all the time then. But basically, they got thrown out because of Chitty's bad language. The landlord threw, threw them out, which is quite funny. Sounds quite funny. Yeah, but he was, he, was, he was slagging off a, a senior officer, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, he Harper. was. Harper, was it? Um, yeah, that's right, Harper, Superintendent Harper. Yeah, right. we really had it in for him. He was shouting profanities about him so loud when <laughs> <laughs> the landlord got him jumped out. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah Lambert describes visiting him as hazardous. <laughs> One of the weird little things about Chitty, it was actually mentioned um, in, uh, in, in the undercover book, is that um that the Chitty was a, a racing driver, but he for some reason he he chose to be this racing driver under his cover name, and there's a photo of him with Chris Rear. Yeah, he won some. I mean, so I, I don't. A brand really, hatch. I'm, I'll be, yeah, I don't really understand the world of, of motor <laughs> racing. I'll be honest, but I'm, I'm guessing it's quite low down on the on the whole kind of um the the the, the CC or whatever the hell they sort of they do. So I don't know what he was racing, but. Apparently, like he was known, he was known by his his 
uh, the Blake uh, surname yeah. as a racing driver as well. And he was he was sharing <laughs> photos. I mean, like, it just seems just like absolutely mental. I don't know, a really weird thing. I, I, I didn't quite. I mean, I didn't quite. I couldn't quite understand if like what 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 wasn't really come across was did this like secondary persona he had as a racing driver did that predate him being an undercover officer or did he start afterwards because I, I mean he he hadn't been in in the force that long and it was one of the things that lambert points out is that he hadn't been in the in the, in the branch for very long previous like he'd previously been in bermuda police and had done some other private sector role which is redacted which had given him some the right sort of experience for the job I think five years, five years, like listen, monitoring um, private phone calls. I think that's that sort of was. In in Bermuda, that's quite interesting in the sense that it links up with the last, or the sorry, the podcast before last. We spoke to Donald about how how widespread the surveillance was because you know basically Chitty's job was to listen to phone calls in Bermuda, and then he went on to another job within a special branch, seeming, it sounds like he was in the control room, but it, it seemed like maybe he was he went back to listening to phone calls mm. then as well. Um, interesting facts about Bermuda, for people who are not from Bermuda, <laughs> is that it's a British, it's one of the few le- it's left... Um, British overseas territories left, but he, but and the back in the nineteen seventies, it's um, I think it's prime minister or president was assassinated by a black power activist. When Chitty was being interviewed for the job, according to Lambert, he didn't know it was to be an undercover officer. He thought it was going to be doing listening to phone calls again. Get, I mean, the whole thing about the all the, much of the evidence that we hear in the inquiry, the published stuff, it's like you know. It's, to say that unreliable narrators is uh, under underestimating just how you know this you know, how much we distrust what they're saying, but that's what we've got. We you know we have to sift through their evidence. Yeah, um, and I, th- I think as well, it's like it shows that like as much as okay, so one level they're being dishonest to the people they're spying on, but that's kind of a given. That's their job. Um, in the course of their deployment, they're being dishonest to their wives because of what they get up to, and then it appears they're being dishonest with each other. And then when they write up about how they're being dishonest with each other, the person who's writing it is being completely dishonest about his own role at the same time. I mean, like, there's so many layers of, of lies and bullshit. It's like, I, you can understand why people wonder what the truth is anymore. Well, this is the, there's another layer of, dis, of, of being a bullshit, is that Lambert, as Evans and, um, and Lewis say in their book, that he basically, he befriended Chitty and pretended to be his friend to get, sort of get all this information out of him, you know, of, you know... So, yeah, it's like literally like, the, 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 you know, the, there's no fraternity there, really, is that? I mean, he talks about the kind of the family of the SDS a few times, but it, I mean, it also shows that they're quite willing to fuck each other over if need be. So he, he mentions at one point where his, um, where Chitty's wife confided in uh, in Lambert. So, like, obviously, you know, he's gone, I, there's a bit of, there's a bit of work been done sort of there. So obviously she must have been like interviewed before he uh, before he wrote this report, because at, at times she said there was nobody she could talk to um, when she was worried about sort of Chitty's um, lack of interest in their home life um, after his deployment and stuff. And she felt there was no one to um, to confide in. And then later on, he says, you know, she confided in uh, in Lambert, you know, obviously he's such a great people person. One of the things I find a bit amusing is that after um, his deployment, a little bit after actually, he he was he was he went into a close protection bodyguarding role um, for two years. I mean, I you know most of the people they protect, I wouldn't yeah, you know, I, I just wouldn't want to be under his care for sure. I mean, he sounded like he wouldn't be all that great at looking after your life. If there was somebody he was you know if he wanted to nominate someone to. To, to protect your your body um, from you know you wouldn't pick him I don't think. I mean it it does show a lot about like, the way in which the sort of the officers are moved around special branch. It's like it's like oh yeah I'm doing you're on the undercover unit oh we're well, moved over to like listening to people and well that kind of makes sense and then it's like oh and then there's just like naturalizing and checking people at ports and, you know, and then like and being a close like close bodyguard to like minor royals and celebrities and stuff it's just a really weird unit in lots of ways isn't yeah it? and it is weird because we, we mentioned the mileage thing already but it is weird i mean that this is what they this is the thing that they found that he, that he was doing that was wrong because you can imagine the state that he sounded like he was in he would have been quite obviously crap at whatever job he was supposed to be doing let alone a bodyguard i mean i think that it, it does show as well like 
we I mean we've heard it in the inquiry enough it's just that, that actually it's that part of things um, it's the it's the expenses it's the the overtime hours it's the flat they've been allocated it's all those kind of issues which are really kind of like they're at the forefront of the minds of the senior officers within the unit. That's the kind of that's that's the real stuff. The which like obviously like it's like you know everybody turns up on a Monday because you had to put your hours in then, so everybody would be there then. You know, and all this kind of is that world which obviously takes precedence then to anything else that's going on. Yeah, like so kind of poorly run at, at times as well because it says um, he mentions uh, Lambert mentions like in two separate occasions. Um, two of the undercover officers failed to um, to stick to one of the sort of the cardinal rules, which is like um, it's not to compromise their identity or compromise the operation. And uh, like for both of the officers were done sort of for, well for the same thing as they were both stopped for drink driving and um, and both like revealed their identities, their real identities to um, to the officers that were uh, stopped them and in fact one of the uh, one of the officers actually had like documents on him in his true identity so you know they yeah it was a bit it was a bit of a tin pot operation from you know from start to, to finish but also um say so another another point is that didn't stop then because um where Alison found uh Mark Cassidy her partner's real um real name of Mark Jenner on a credit card in his pocket so it's sort of it's one of these things that you know they never they don't ever seem to have learned or to have um to have got got past this sort of uh, this amateur amateur hour I suppose hmm. I mean it's telling that like when I mean, we heard during the last section of the inquiry about like what Rick Gibson has got up to in terms of having relationships and compromising himself in various ways was well known throughout special branch, not just the SDS. So like they they knew that like kind of the that that bad like kind of badly done, badly behaved. So I, I don't know how to sort of place it, but like unprofessionalism, I guess, was was a problem from like you know at least then, which is you know, it's it's a good well it's a good ten years before this report's written, and like you get this impression that like oh yeah the, the, there's this problem there's that problem, but anyway <laughs> we'll just carry on regardless. In the conclusion of this, you know, chapter seven of of the Lambert report, um, um, a final word about the Harrys. Lambert says the majority return to normal duties within special branch without fuss or favour, enlightened if not necessarily enriched by the undercover experience. A significant minority leave the police service to pursue invariably successful careers and areas that offer personal challenge making passing reference to our two most recent departures here we go with the the dines bit who would dare argue against becoming a john dines becoming a successful first-rate lawyer the same determination and creativity that stood in him in good stead on the sds will serve them well as they carve out rewarding new careers uh, yeah. Anyway, I mean, it's, it's insane. I mean, like he goes on to say that you know, that, like in twenty-five years, they've only of eight and eighty undercover officers, only four have tarnished the role, the yes. unit, and it's like apart from like, well, like, you know, well, he himself obviously isn't included in those four. You know, I mean, it's incredibly. It's just it's, it's like another layer of deceit. I mean, like they weren't even being honest with each other. Like, not not only were they not being honest with the people that they were infiltrating, they weren't being honest with each other. Yeah, I mean, they'd already had, um, was it Jim Pickford as well? He sort of, he'd already kind of got, well, yeah, had a child at that point with another, um, with one of the uh, women he was he was spying on. Um, but yeah, there's just, you know, just glossing over sort of all of these other things that, you know, that we now know. It's, you know, he must have been sort of laughing behind his hand as he was writing this rubbish but what was weird is that it's it's not only that we know it but also we have heard that it was common gossip within the unit so like who is this report written for who would read this report and think it was honest i mean where is it gonna go how i mean it's, it's to the commissioner isn't it i mean right, exactly right so it's like literally like the, the only people it's an internal document and anybody who's got access to it apart from the very senior brass are gonna know it's a load of bullshit you know, and I would have known it's bullshit for a long time. There's a bit in there where he's talking about how, like, Chitty is convincing, you know, like, he's, he managed to convince senior officers that he was doing useful work when anybody who was actually in the animal rights movement would know that he wasn't. And it's like, well, that goes for the whole bloody unit. Like, you're just, it's all this, like, 
you're selling, and this document itself is part of selling a lie about what the unit gets up to to senior management. Yeah, I'd love to know what these these like you know the the huge successes that the other you know the the other officers have have got. I mean, there's like um, like Chris said, there's the um, there was the um, incendiary devices that got um, the two activists jailed, and also then sort of around it would have been around this time, around sort of ninety four. Um, that uh, Matt Rayner, I say framed, but uh, sort of convinced uh, the, one of those those same um, activists to uh, to purchase a shotgun, and you know, and then of course it was you know that appeared to be I think that was quite a, an amusing um, amusing thing amongst the the SDS is that um, sort of Lam- Lambert had got um, had got him jailed the first time, and then he was set up again um, by Rayner and did another long prison sentence. Lambert very much seems to say that what happened before in the SDS, before him and good old HN86 joined, it was all a bit, bit of a shambles and the deployments were all a bit random. But from his time onwards, it was all brilliant. And, you know, they only deployed officers to de- detect serious criminality and, you know, and, and, and the such like. But obviously, we know right up to the, if you like, the end of the MPIOU that, you know, that wasn't the case, you know. Uh, Lynn Watson's deployment in the, the in within the clowns the the clown army is obviously the most absurd example of that in terms of like deploying undercovers to non-threatening groups. But you know, so yeah, yeah, he says it. He says it quite quite a few times within the in the report. Mm. Yeah, uh, Lambert also um, he said that in one of these things where he he claims that uh, Chitty wasn't telling the truth, um, he says where Chitty implies that he was involved in making or planting of incendiary devices, and um, Lambert was keen to explain that Chitty was at the shallow end of the animal rights pool. So basically, you know, it was it's a bit of a sort of like you know he didn't know he didn't do that he was a you know he was in the shallow end you know whereas you know uh, Lambert himself was obviously a you know deep deep swimmer it just it's sort of it's kind of smacks of like no 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 he didn't do it but I did I can I can plant incendiary devices do you want me to show you how he didn't actually say doesn't say that but you know yeah, it's. I mean, it's. It, it's all part of that. It's, it's just like it's all sales patter. I mean, like he moans about like cheaty sales patter, but this this bloody document's a bunch of sales patter. Yeah, it's another another one of the um, the amusing things that Chitty Chitty did was um, after his. Uh, I think this was one whilst he was like on his two year sick leave, um, waiting to to hear the um, the outcome of the disciplinary against him. Um, is that he was arrested for using an invalidated travel pass um, because he, he because he had no warrant card, and uh, and in the end he told um, the uh, transport police that he was um, an under he was working undercover and he was eventually released and uh, Lambert was was um, was sent into. Uh, to, to smooth over amongst sort of the the locals who'd made a the local police who'd made a complaint against him and he was sent in to smooth over um, this complaint about they'd made about Chitty's abusive behavior yeah i mean one of the things i suppose that when we look over the history from 68 onwards is that they, they did have quite good coverage but it was kind of of all the of of left wing groups etc. I mean it was quite random in the sense such they you know for, for instance in the bigger organisations like the SWP which branch they ended up it was very much happenstance but they did cover a lot of ground but it seems to be more by accident than design in the sense that the British left in this broadest sense in this broadest sense was quite small so even by with their crap sort of organisation skills, they still manage somehow to report on on, on most of it. But it, you know, it's more by as I say, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think partially it's that scattergun effect they had of just sending out officers to areas and going like, just find something, just find something, to, you know, just join join something, you know, particularly early on. And I mean, as time goes on, you get this sense that though they maybe selected targets a bit more, that in reality it was just like kind of get out there and get involved in something. And if they send out enough officers, then they'll do fairly decent coverage. Yep. 
one of the things that Lambert specifically mentions is that um, Chitty was quite good at you know putting in well written reports, but he, he, he but he says those you know he never reported any sort of criminality or anything like that. But from what we've read of the reports from sixty eight to eighty two, I would say ninety nine percent of them have no, no sort of criminality in at all. They're organisational meetings. Um, on the whole, I mean, there are reports of demos, etc., as well. But you know, for Lambert to criticise Chitty in that respect is like criticising we, you know, he should be criticising the SDS operations for the you know, pr the previous thirty years. You know, I mean, which goes back to my point about like who's it written for? I mean, it, it's got to be for somebody who's security clearance to know about it, but also has no knowledge of what this SDS has been like for the last twenty five years. At that point. This document only makes sense if you read it in isolation. If you've got a working knowledge of the unit generally, then it doesn't make sense. Yeah, if you know who Bob Lambert is, it also doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's actually interesting because where he, they, sort of one of the few things that I've seen, you know, about the sort of the far right groups is he, um, is he explains sort of when he's saying about why Chitty would want to go back and basically it said, you know, it's the sort of the, um, the cosy world of middle class animal rights and the soft activists of no real interests to the police. But then he mentions, um, he said that some of the undercovers that were deployed into right wing groups, he said they have no desire amongst the undercover officers in right wing groups to return. Um, and they said that they feel extreme uh, occasional extreme antipathy towards the um, their undercover associate associates um, is the right wing is often violent crude and bigoted so basically it's sort of it was um you know we're just a lot nicer people you know as animal rights and anarchists and stuff it said you know it's they they have to um the officers had to have sort of like some psychological help to uh, to help them break the bond with these people that they made like close sort of close, strong friendships with whilst they were undercover. Again, that speaks to Lambert's delusional picture of himself, this, like, progressive right-on liberal thinker. But also, it is that, like, <laughs> turns out we're great. Turns out our culture and our, like, you know, the the, the, the kind of the, the, the scene, if you like, is actually all right, you know? We're, we're nice people, unlike, unlike all these other fuckers, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I can I can see I can see what the issue would would be, but you know, and also, but sort of to, to bear in mind, you know, like um, Bob Lambert left his uh, you know his two year old son um, that he had with the activist um, to go back to his his normal life, and you know that's I mean anyone that's had kids, you know, it's just can't fathom how someone can do that. So you know, it's where some of these other officers you know forged strong bonds of friendship and that. He just, you know, doesn't seem to, even with his own son, doesn't seem to have uh, that to have been a problem. So he just upped and left. It's just like the whole thing is just a really prime example of cognitive dissonance. If you send this to a a, a shrink, it's like this guy, when you tell, you know, told him what this guy was and then <laughs> read this. It's like, how could you write this? Well, you know, this is so delusional. Mm. Delusional, I suppose, is the word, isn't it? Um, there's there's a couple of, one of the other things about um, Lambert is he has he makes several literary illusions in the paper that you know also quite pretentious. Well, he starts off actually with a, a reference to celluloid heroes by the Kinks, goes straight into Dickens and Mr. Micawber, <laughs> and then we have like literally it's just like all within a couple of paragraphs. It's just like over overdoing it somewhat, mate. Come on, yeah, yeah you can read books. We get it. Yeah, and don't forget quoting Oscar Wilde as well. You're, yeah, yeah, Oscar Wilde, you're, you're this lefty, intelligent, you just happen to be ended up in the police, you know, whatever, mate. Yeah, not a pretentious tosser at all. No, but one of his, one of his, one of his better, <laughs> one of his better, um, his better phrases, um, said that when he was talking about Chitty um, not actually being attached to um, his group of animal rights people and the cause, um, it was more about his predilection for cannabis, a carefree lifestyle, heavy rock music and laid-back women. Laid-back women, yeah. Laid-back women. Uh, <laughs> but he also says he's... It, it, a bit of a trivial point. He's into, uh, he was into this psych rock band called Man. Well, yeah, that was actually interesting, that. So, like... Listeners from South Wales who might know me would, would know Man. Um, shout out to Clint Iguana, who was a, a huge Man fan. He made a, a thing of being like, as part of his persona, he was a, a Man follower. 
and we we found this as well with Marco Jacobs later on. Mm. He was like this this big fan of a, a number of like quite obscure kind of heavy metal bands. Um, but like, but he he became this follower of man under his his under his f- false name under the Michael Blake name, the same as he'd been this racing car driver. So he he created this this p- persona, which obviously like. One, he was like he continued to go to Man gigs. He obviously liked Man. Check out Man actually. They're quite sadly so the main guy's dead now. But um, you know, interesting blokes like kind of quite hard psychedelic. You know, there's quite yeah quite a few of the undercovers had favourite bands which they probably genuinely incl- included yeah. that as part of their persona. Well, know. I mean, like Vince Miller when he was said to him that he, part of his persona okay. was being a fan <laughs> of West Coast uh, uh, was it West Coast music, West Coast rock music, whatever it's bloody called. And he went, no, I genuinely am an officiato. <laughs> like, sorry, mate, didn't mean to diss your fucking musical taste, like, in this fucking thing about you being a fucking rapist. And can I just, at this point, it's, it's, um, it's pertinent to say that the only thing I ever heard Andy listen to in, in the van was um, Right Said Fred. I think that says, every, that says it all, doesn't it, really? <laughs> fucking hell right so i mean like interestingly now conspiraloon nutters about uh covid aren't they they're oh, are they? God. yeah incredibly active on uh well i think i've got banned from twitter now because the amount of uh really? madness they've come out with yeah so uh, andy david they may be one of the least cool when it came to the musical fucking interest yeah turned up turned up jeans so i mean like uh if you are looking to understand the psyche of the undercover police this document may not be the place to start but if you're looking to see what a weird, twisted insect, once you know who these characters are, reading this document will give you an idea of like how dysfunctional the unit was. Yeah, there was one sort of nugget of sort of um, in police nerdery in it where it mentions of in chapter three where it says when he's talking about Chitty completing his SES tour of duty, his specialism in covert operations, working first on S Squad Unit Two and then at Putney. So he moved to this section, SO11, which at that point was called the Special Intelligence Section, SIS, which is also the same acronym for MI5, confusingly. Um, but um, yeah, so part of his duties was in this squad, which went on to run the fit squads, the people that used to harass uh, activists back in the sort of late 90s. The, the, forward, the, the forward intelligence teams. Forward intelligence teams, fit teams, yeah. So, um, And that's interesting because it seemed from the implication there is that... They also run some kind of electronic surveillance um, thing, which we kind of got. This is what we thought we we that did happen. Um, so, but it's interesting that actually other, that's a nugget of information I don't think we had confirmed before. I think it's, it's interesting actually because I think Fit, uh, the Ford Intelligence Teams, and then the response from Fit Watch, I think was the first sort of activist, sort of anti, like um, political policing uh, campaign that really kind of got under the skin of the police. Um, if anybody remembers back in the sort of late 2000s um, or mid, mid to late 2000s, fit watchers, you know, get, taking banners, putting them in the way of the of the police cameras and stuff. And so essentially, like, ended up the, the unit was just, in, it, it became such a thing to like kind of harass and, uh, and get in the way of, of the Ford intelligence teams that they got rid of the unit. Um, I think we see a similar thing now with the police liaison officers, the PLOs, the, those light blue bibs. We've seen some fantastic work from by like um, spelling mistakes cost lives uh, with that the signs that don't talk to these these people with a big sign kind of following them around on demos. And I really encourage if you know if, it because so much of like kind of resisting repression of political movements is it's partly about the covert surveillance, but it's also about the overt intimidation and the overt like intelligence gathering that group that sections like the Ford intelligence teams and the public and the police liaison officers now. Do. like kind of if you if you are going to a demonstration you see those officers encourage people not to speak to them if you can get one of those banners you can, you can download the the artwork from spelling mistakes cost lives print them out just stand there with a the, with a placard next to them do not talk to these these officers you know they are there to find out information about you and I, certainly i remember when the the ford intelligence teams when i first personally um had interactions with them I discovered that like the information they discovered about me there was probably information that was used to aid the deployment of undercover police officers into my life. So these units were obviously obviously passed intelligence between each other, um, and it's often that it's the overt policing that gives them that information in order to be able to use an undercover officer in people's lives. So I mean, like um, an interesting little document in many ways, like mad in lots of others. Um, Certainly, like, you know, uh, 
I'm not. It, it, it is redacted in places, but it's a lot less redacted than a lot of the other documents we've had released to us. Um, according to the inquiry, that's because it became. It was very clear that um, it had been referred to heavily by um, Rob Evans and Paul Lewis in their book, and that they hadn't broken the Official Secrets Act. So. It would, it's almost like it would be childish for us to redact it now. Although it was some, I don't know if you remember, in, in um, some part of the preliminary hearings of the inquiry, there was some kind of restriction order issued aimed at journalists not to release any more details of the document. Do you remember that? Yeah, there was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it was. It was very much one of those like beyond the like they've already published the book, John. Like there's no <laughs> need. Like any kind of you know like. Whatever they wanted to get of the document, uh, they obviously were advised by lawyers not to release certain parts of it. Uh, be, uh, the parts of it that they did want, they've already done. Um, I mean, it's, it's just that kind of ridiculous way that the inquiry is trying desperately to control things that it has no control over. So we, we will return to Bob Lambert again. We'll return to, my, we'll return to all this, this cast of fuckwit characters. I mean, but I mean, we will definitely return to Bob a lot in the future. Um, like if, if there's anybody if anybody else has read this and has you know kind of thinks they've, they've spotted something we haven't mentioned please do get in touch yeah there's actually there's one there's one thing that um that stood out to to me and it was uh it was where lambert suggested that he himself and dci edmondson who had recently taken over the sds um should be allowed to access and view comments of doctors assessing chitty um, and also for the psychiatrist assessing Chitty to have some objective background information of the case rather than the, just the sole account of Chitty himself. So basically, Chitty's a liar and can't be trusted. And so uh, Lambert needs to give his own version to the psychiatrist making <laughs> making a judgment on his mental state. It's, I mean, it's amazing, really, how, like, how much Bob Lambert thinks he's so fucking great. I mean, like, he's like, oh, what you need is someone objective and honest, like me, for example. <laughs> well, um, thanks for joining us. Uh, we will return again next week. Um, if you want to find out more about this topic or listen to any of our previous episodes, check out spycops.info. Uh, if you're able to give us a review on any of your any podcasting platform you listen to this on, or if you're using Apple Podcasts particularly, um, please give us a five-star review there. It means a huge amount to our... Uh, visibility maybe next uh, episode we'll start reading out some of the reviews but um so please like leave written one and if there's anything you want us to say you can leave it in there we will read it out do we want to do a, a little bit on the update that we came out about the the next hearing etc oh yeah so um uh the it would appear that the next uh phase phase three of tranche one of the undercover policing inquiry will start now on the 9th of may 2022 um so that would be the end. That's the final part of the first tranche, and um, we'll mark the. It'll be two to three weeks. Um, then we, then theoretically, the inquiry will move on to tranche two, um, which is the next time period. Um, if the inquiry continues at the same pace it has <laughs> so far, we'd be looking for a report in about twenty thirty seven. They've now the inquiry has claimed that future tranches will be quicker. That um, that they, they've learnt how to do it through this phase. I mean, I would point out that given that so much, the, the thing which is, takes so long, according to the inquiry, is the processing of disclosure and the fact that there are six steps um, to the checking of documents before they're released to um, for participants. Given that there's so little of it from the 1970s has survived, and there's liable to be a great deal more disclosure in the later sections. I'm not entirely convinced that the later tranches will pass that much smoother and that much quicker. But supposedly, you know, we'd be looking, they're, they're, they're hopeful for like a 2027 20, sort of uh, uh, conclusion. But, you know, who knows? Yeah, I, mean, I think I think to date the longest public inquiry is the Bloody Sunday inquiry of yeah. 13 years. And I think we're, we're definitely going to get second place. Oh, at least we're going for a silver medal for sure. I think I believe in John Mitting. I think you can do it. Go for gold, John. <laughs> it can take longer. I believe in you. <laughs>